Well, the title of my message is, Wow, Now What? Wow, Now What? Can you imagine, again, I like to put myself back, if I can imagine, in the place of being one of those disciples. God, you know, <clears throat> think about that, that time of Jesus' ministry of nearly three years, and you get to be one of the guys with him, one of the women with him. There were a number of women with him. The disciples, and when it says disciples in the Bible, you need to differentiate. Sometimes it's referring to the 12, or it's referring to all of his believers that were following him. And there were many. And can you imagine being one of those 12, though, that you, you were with Jesus from the beginning, and you saw all the things that took place? It would have just been mind-blowing. I, I, I can't hardly imagine what it would have been like when they, they saw the lepers cleansed just like that before their very eyes and saw, saw people laying crippled with their limbs all twisted and distorted, and all of a sudden everything straightens out right before their eyes, and the guy gets up and walks. And then they're watching a funeral procession go through town and all of a sudden Jesus just interrupts it and ruins it by raising them from the dead. And the teaching, sitting at at the campfires at night, listening to him teach. Boy, it had been fun to have all of the stories, all of the teaching that he must have shared with those guys. And then, of course, in the midst of all of that, there was all that religious garbage they had to deal with. I mean, the persecution, getting run out of town. Jesus had to escape more than once. I mean, they were even, his disciples didn't even want him to go back to Jerusalem. It was like, Lord, we know you get it. And I mean, we know you're pretty smart, obviously, but what are you thinking? It didn't go so good last time we were in Jerusalem. But then they get there and, and they get to experience that, that week before the, what we call the triumphal entry or we call it Palm Sunday in our religious calendars, where Jesus and the disciples got to go into, into Jerusalem. <clears throat> I can't hardly imagine what it would have been like. I mean, I'm one of the 12. I'm one of the elite. And here we go, our, our leader. I mean, the people are going crazy. Everybody's cheering and screaming and throwing their coats on the ground before the little donkey and and. And the, you know, the, the, the religious people are telling him, make your people be quiet. And, you know, hey, if they be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. And you go, yeah, I believe that. I've seen what he can do. And then just a few short days later, they experience the betrayal by one of their own. They're in the garden with Jesus. They still don't get it. He's told them clearly what was coming, but they didn't get it. And then here comes Judas who had left supper early and gives the Lord a kiss on his cheek and they arrest him. And they scatter. We don't even know where they all scattered to. We do know about Peter, poor Peter. Lord, I'll die for you. Nobody's going to come between you and me, Lord. I'll die for you. It's a done deal. You can count on me. Even though the rest of them I'm not sure about, but you can count on me. You know, he betrays him, denies him three times. And then the beating, the mock trial. Where were they all at? Were they there listening? I can't hardly imagine the emotional roller coaster that they would have been on. And then, of course, the crucifixion. And again, we're not sure which disciples were there. Maybe it was only John and a few of the faithful women and his mother Mary. But whoever was there, <coughs> their world was destroyed. They'd left everything. Imagine if you or I had forsaken everything. We left home, family, our jobs. We left it all to follow this guy. And then he's dead. He's dead. 
And not only is he dead, you pretty well figure they hated him. They're not going to like us much. So they're hiding in fear behind locked doors. Probably afraid they're going to get arrested. Who knows? Maybe they'll crucify us too. And then lo and behold, he gets raised from the dead. Boy, talk about one of those times when you just kind of hit yourself in the forehead and go, now what? What's next? What can possibly be next? Can it get better or is it going to get worse? I'm going to read in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Read the first six, eight verses. Luke is writing this, and I, I like the way he starts out by telling us, I'm going, to, I'm going to share with you, as chronologically as I can, everything I know so that you got it straight. He says, on the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And then in verses 7 and 8 that aren't on the screen right now, it says, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You know, after Jesus' resurrection, after all the pain, all the suffering, what is sometimes referred to as the passion of Christ, after all of that, he's raised from the dead and he appears to the apostles. And he's on the earth for 40 days before he ascends to the to Father. And just as a sidebar, Do you ever wonder what Jesus was thinking during those 40 days? I mean, he knows where he's headed. He knows he's going back to sit at the right hand of the Father. He's going to go back and get all of the glory that the Father has promised him. He knows that his main purpose for coming to to earth is over with, and he gets to go back to heaven. Count, he has to wait 40 days. It drove me crazy. Forty days, God, three years with these guys. Should be enough. But it wasn't. And the 40 days weren't an accident. There was a purpose. And really, it's one of the more important teachings of Christ is what took place during those 40 days. Believe it or not, it impacts us today. It impacts the church today, what took place. It was an important time for the apostles, obviously. It was an important time for them to see Jesus. And not only to see him so that they were convinced that he had been raised from the dead, but to receive the teaching because there was a whole lot of things that need to be clarified. 
even with Jesus doing all that teaching, telling them exactly what was going to happen, they really didn't get it all even yet after he was raised from the dead. And in Acts, we see Luke just kind of putting a, a very tiny little bit of information crammed in a few verses. But this was a time that 40 days was a time for Jesus himself to give proof of his resurrection and then to give these last very personal teaching to the apostles about the kingdom of God. About the kingdom of God. I believe that's why he was there for 40 days to teach them to clarify things, get their thinking changed to a kingdom mentality not a nationalistic mentality, not a political mentality, but all of a sudden they needed this 40 days of teaching so they would clearly understand what their life's mission was all about. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to us what took place in those 40 days. We are continuing to carry on the mission that he gave to the 12 apostles. Their calling is our calling. He's equipped us. I know it seems crazy, but he trusts us, his church, to carry out his mission that he's given to us as he gave to the apostles. In verse, verse 3 that I just read, it says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. There it is. Twofold reason. Proof that he was raised from the dead. Second, teaching about the kingdom of God. Just think if you could go back and all of a sudden all the story about Jesus stops at the empty tomb. They go to the tomb. Mary goes to the tomb. It's empty. She runs back and talks to the disciples. They don't believe her. But they run to the tomb, at least Peter and John do. They look in. It's empty. What if the story ended there? Would you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Would we believe it 2,000 years later? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? The story of the Pharisees would have been believable. Somebody came and stole his body. It's all a fairy tale. But there's no way that God would let the story end there. There would be irrefutable proof. We see and we're all aware that Jesus showed himself to the apostles. The 12. Now, <clears throat> a little sidebar. Somebody, some people look for all kinds of inconsistencies in the Scripture and say there's contradictions in the Scripture. And there aren't any, by the way. There appears to be at times like that one. He appeared to the 12 disciples. How many were there? That's what we would say, wouldn't we? Who was the 12th? Who replaced Judas? Matthias. Do you think Matthias was there? Do you think he was with them, the other disciples gathered together? We know he was there. He was there. He wasn't just officially set in yet. But he appeared to the disciples. We know that. And then we also showed him, know that he appeared to many of the other disciples. So he appeared to the 12 and many, many others. And I want to give you, as best I can, what appears to be a chronological order of his appearances. And... Some of them you're probably well aware of. Others may have slipped past you because you don't find them all in the same place. 
you, you, certainly I'm not going to read all the scriptures, but most of them would be on the screen if you want to jot them down. But we know first of all, and, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, he, he first appeared to who? Mary Magdalene. First appearance was to Mary Magdalene. And then we see in a couple of other places in Matthew, and then you have to put together Mark and Luke, and you see that after Mary Magdalene, he appeared to a group. Mary Magdalene was one of them, but it was also Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was a woman named Salome and a woman named Joanna. And in the, the Luke verses, it just says, and another woman who was amongst the many women who were with Jesus. So he appeared to that second group, and then he appeared to Simon Peter. And that's an easy one to miss. In Luke 24, verse 34, it's kind of tucked in the story about the, the man named Clopas and his companion that we just refer to as the two men on the road to Emmaus. When they're telling their story to the disciples, it's just kind of stuck in there. And he had appeared to Simon Peter. We don't hear much about that until we get to 1 Corinthians. And there Paul just kind of throws it in. He appeared to Peter and then the 12. I like to imagine what that meeting was like. Usually, most of us think of that, that meeting when he talks to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But they'd met before. I think it's interesting that it was Peter. And I think it's also interesting, it's kind of like one of those personal conversations that needed to take place that not everybody else needs to know about. You ever have any of those? It seems like that might have been the case with Peter. And then he did meet with Clopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus that you can read about in Luke where Jesus came walking up to them or where they were going. It's like he caught up with them or showed up out of nowhere. And he walked with them and they didn't figure it out till they broke bread at their house. And they turned around and boogied all the way back to tell the other disciples. And that's what they said. He is alive. Peter's seen him. And now we've seen him. And then the 11 disciples minus Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. All of these took place on that first day. Evidence. Eyewitnesses. And then eight days later, a week later, <coughs> excuse me, he shows up with the 11 again, only this time Thomas is there. And then over the next few weeks, he shows up to the disciples, to the gathering. One group was 500, 500 people at one time. And then another one that's just kind of stuck in there in 1 Corinthians that you just kind of miss, James. And we're not exactly sure who that James was, but most theologians think it was the brother of Jesus. I like thinking that. Can't guarantee it. But it'd sure be nice if he'd show himself to some of the family, wouldn't it? Besides Mary, his mother. So we have at least these 10 different times in Scripture where he showed himself physically 
as evidence. The quality of the evidence doesn't get much better than an eyewitness account. And there were many, many eyewitness accounts. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where it talks about um, convincing proofs is what the NIV says. I'm not sure what all the other translations say. But the word there in the Greek is, would be easily transferred to the English word that we use as infallible. Infallible proof was given. Proof that was convincing, it was sure, it was undeniable. Unmistakable truth. They saw him. They talked to him. They touched him. Touched his wounds. And then just to convince them that he really wasn't a ghost, he says, I'm hungry, you got something to eat. And they gave him some fish. And, and, and it's interesting, they say, he ate it in front of them. You know, all those little things can be missed or, or just thought of as insignificant in the story. But when you realize he's doing all these things. Remember, Jesus didn't do anything without a purpose. Anything. So when you read these different stories, it's always good to ask this question. wonder why that's in there. He ate that fish to show that he was flesh and blood. He was was raised from the dead. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't just a spirit. He had been raised, truly raised, from the dead. How do these appearances affect you and me? Why is it a big deal? Because really it's this evidence that is the only logical way the only sensible way for us to truly believe in the resurrection. It's not just because someone told us. It's just, you know, I told you he was raised from the dead, now go tell everybody. There's got to be proof. You know, the scriptures can withstand the most severe scrutiny. And we have eyewitness accounts. We don't even know for sure how many people saw him. And we'll mention it later, but But just think of the disciples, the 12. You know, people, ah, they just could have made the story up. Remember, all but one of them, tradition tells us, died violent deaths defending the truth of the resurrection. All they had to do was deny it, and they'd have been fine. So we have this infallible evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. In John chapter 20, you know, he says, and this is said more than one place in Scripture, he says, I'm telling you all these things. I'm telling you all these details. I'm sharing all these stories with you. I'm sharing all these miracles with you. I'm sharing all these healings with you that you might believe on a rock-solid foundation of eyewitness accounts. None of this stuff. I heard about this healing once somewhere down in southern Africa. Therefore, we know God heals. No. Eyewitness accounts. Part of the reason we believe healing is for today is we've seen eyewitness accounts confirming the word of God. Confirming its word. Jesus had told them, you know, they were going to do these things that he'd done. And when it started happening, it just reinforced his word. These proofs, this evidence are just as undeniable today as they were then. And you might wonder, how can that be? Nobody can testify who was still there. We have their testimony in the word of God. And trust us, trust me, 
the word of God has been attacked and attacked and attacked for centuries. And it's still there. It's still believable. The promises that we sang about this morning are still true. They're still true, no matter what. So the evidence was there. In John 20 and in 1 Peter 1, it talks about this evidence produces faith. It's a byproduct of the evidence. In John 20, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. But then he goes on and says, and even those more blessed are those that haven't seen and yet they do believe. In 1 Peter, he commends those like us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because of the evidence. Because of the proof. So, those 40 days, first and foremost, was proof. What about the second reason? The teaching of the kingdom. And I'm going to go through, I don't even know how many, seven different things that Jesus taught them during that 40 days. First of all, Jesus taught them the meaning of Scripture as it related to his mission. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 46, it says, Jesus spoke to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All the Old Testament stuff. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. And actually in verse 27, it says this, beginning with Moses... And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He used the scriptures to really open their minds. A lesson for you and me. You ever got in a great discussion? Maybe it even bordered on a debate. And you're trying to convince somebody that they should become a Christian and they should believe what you believe. And you used all your best arguments, shared every one of your opinions, and they look at you like you're still an idiot. Maybe the reason is you're not using the Word. Everybody's got an opinion. The Word of God is powerful. God, Jesus, used the Scriptures to open their minds to the truth, to give them revelation. He took them all the way back to the book of Genesis, I believe, and walk them all the way through, showing them, there I am, there I am, there I am. And now you see me standing before you, raised from the dead, the fulfillment of all of that. Teaching them and preparing them the scriptures in relation to his mission to come to earth, to suffer and die, and to be raised from the dead, and ultimately to be exalted and put at the right hand of God the Father. And they finally got it. The second thing that he taught them was about the forthcoming, the kingdom that was coming and was right there for them. He told them how it had been predicted and how it had been laid out for them in the Old Testament. 
The message of the kingdom was one of repentance and forgiveness being fulfilled in Jesus. In Acts 2, verse 38, this is in Peter's sermon. After he's told the Jewish people a little history about what's just taken place, how they've rejected Christ, crucified him, but he's been raised from the dead. And then it says, they said, Peter, what do we need to do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, the message of the kingdom was about Jesus. When it says in the name of Jesus Christ, we need to re- continually remind ourselves it's not about just a label. The message of the kingdom was about repentance and forgiveness of sins because of who Jesus was and what he did and what was done through him. So when it says because of or in the name of Jesus Christ, this is the message of the kingdom. Repentance and forgiveness is available to all through who Jesus was. He was the sinless son of God. He is... He came from heaven to earth and took on the form of a baby and he walked a sinless life all the way to the cross. He died, was crucified, buried for us and raised from the dead. When it talks about in the name of Jesus Christ, that's what it all means and more. All that he was, all that he was, everything that he did. And that's the message of the kingdom. And Jesus is teaching them This is the message of the kingdom. They were still confused. They were still looking at it from a nationalistic perspective. Third thing he talked to them about was their role, their work in the kingdom. You know... If you're one of the disciples and you're starting to really get it and you realize Jesus is only going to be around for a while, they don't know for sure how long yet, but he's kind of made it clear he's not sticking around. Now what? Now what? Well, he tells them again, first of all, they are to be eyewitnesses. Their testimony, their eyewitnesses, they're to tell everybody what they saw. They were eyewitnesses of all that took place. In John 3, verse 11, it says, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you don't accept our testimony. So they were testifying of every scene, everything that they had seen, everything that they had experienced as eyewitnesses. And it was based upon these proofs, and they were to testify of it, and they were to preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. Fourth thing they were t- Jesus taught him about was the kind of devotion that was going to be required to fulfill this call. Again, this is directly for us, like it all is. John 21 is that section of Scripture, starting at verse 15, that section of Scripture where Jesus and Peter are having their conversation. Now remember, this isn't the first time they've talked. I don't know what was said the first time. But this is that time where Jesus looks to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And of course, Peter says, of course I love you, Lord. The only problem is they're using two different words in the Greek. 
Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Lord, I phileo you. I love you like a friend. I love you like a brother. He says again, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Lord, you know I love you. I phileo you. Finally, the third time he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And this time, Peter's answer is a little different. God's question is a little different. But it's interesting. Each time it took place, he says, the first time, Peter, tend my lambs. Then he says, shepherd my sheep. And then again, tend or feed my sheep. He's connecting the kind of love that's going to be necessary for the devotion that's going to be required to fulfill the mission. If you don't love me enough, if your love's not real, if it's not sincere, you're not going to be able to deal with what's coming your way when you fulfill the mission. I'm sending you out with a difficult message. It's the message of hope. It's the message that brings life. It's the greatest message ever given. But the world is not going to receive it well. Peter, do you love me? Church, do you love me? Do you agape me or do you just phileo me? Do you love me like a friend when I'm there for you? Or do you love me even conditionally no matter what? No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the persecution. And he's teaching them this is what it's going to take because it's going to happen. Part of what he taught was, hey, they persecuted me. Guess what? They're going to persecute you. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. Do you love me enough to fulfill the mission? He taught them about the kind of devotion it was going to take. And again, historically, and it seems relatively accurate, that we know that 11 out of those 12, all of them but John, died violent deaths, crucifixions, beheadings, crucified upside down, ugly deaths for sharing the message, carrying out the mission that God had called them to. Fifth thing was he taught them to correct and get them on the right track of their wrong or mistaken view of the kingdom. I've mentioned this a couple times already, but he was teaching them that the kingdom is totally different than what you thought. This nationalistic thing of me reestablishing Israel as this powerful nation, restoring the, the power to you as a nation, as a group of people, It isn't going to happen. You've missed it completely. That's why so many people miss Jesus completely. It wasn't about a worldly kingdom, although in a sense the kingdom of God is here. And yet, in a sense, it's coming. You and I are participants in the kingdom of God if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are part of his kingdom. That's why we are nothing but sojourners, travelers here in this life, on this earth. We don't belong here. Our real home is in heaven with him. So he's talking about it in, in verse, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they asked this question. He said, is this the time, Lord, you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it shows you how badly they're missing it still when they think the kingdom is going to give in to Israel. It's not about their kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And he's teaching them about submission to the authority of the king 
of the new kingdom. They were still into that political thinking, which again is something we need to be careful of. Politics is a real thing. Earthly government is a real thing. But our kingdom, the true kingdom, is the kingdom of God. And in verse 7, he tells them all that's going to take place is up to the Father. Everything you need to know, guess what? I've told you. The rest of the stuff is mine. The secret things of God are still secret. We don't understand everything. We have questions. And boy, there's times in our life we have more questions and more questions and more questions. But we need to be careful when those questions come that we stay focused on the king. We keep our eye on the king and the promises that we do know are true. Not what, what all of the what-ifs that pop up in our head or those questions that, that can easily lead to doubt or fear. Part of being able to hang on to the truth comes back to, Peter, do you love me? Do you trust me completely? They're saying everything that's going to take place is going to take place just as the Father wants it. And it had so far and it will till the end. And then in verse 8 he says, you will receive power, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you. The Holy Spirit will equip you. And it will equip you to go out and be my witnesses. Teach the true kingdom. Teach the real thing. Teach what Jesus did. Teach who Jesus was. Teach what is accomplished through Christ. Teach about who you are in Christ. Teach the truth of the kingdom. So after he's done all this teaching, he teaches them that they are living under a command. Notice the first thing he does is tells them, stay in Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem, but stay there. I'm giving you this great commission, but go and stay and wait. Wait. Well, they were waiting specifically for something, and he told them exactly what they were to wait for. He told them, if you look at verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses. The mission has been laid out for him, but now he's telling him, wait, and then you will receive power to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, In Luke 24, verse 49, it says, You'll be clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power from on high. There is a power of God that's released through that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Power that you and I need for everything, from overcoming sin, the sinful nature of us, and to carry out the mission that he's given us. And lastly, He taught them what it means to be commissioned. And after they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we see they started carrying out the commission. They received the power. 
the power to take the message and go with a message that has the power of God endorsing it. And I want to just make clear here, you know, sometimes, especially as charismatics, whenever we think of the power of God, we think of doing the signs and wonders. Well, the biggest sign and the biggest wonder is God saved you. And then almost as big as he's sanctifying you by his Holy Spirit. The life you lead, the life you lead is confirmation of your salvation. And it's a life that needs to have the power of the Holy Spirit that we can lead it in such a way as to bring glory and honor to God. The signs and wonders beyond that are great, but there should be a change, transformed life. Our life should look different than the world. Our life should look different than it looked like before we got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have been empowered to lead a life. It's not about works. Your salvation's already dealt with. That's not what it's about. It's about being an ambassador of Christ. Your testimony, your witness, along with the truth of the gospel message, the message of the kingdom, those two things in tandem are powerful. So we need to be always conscious of the choices we're making every day in the way we live our life. The people are watching you. They're watching me. And the more you share the good news of the gospel, the more they're going to watch you. And you're going to blow it. Hope you don't blow it as often as I do. But you probably will. But we need to just confess and get back on the right track. Because your testimony matters. Your testimony matters. And it will help people to receive the message. So the 40-day period between the resurrection and the the ascension for the disciples was, again, the roller coaster was going, was really, I mean, it was exciting. It was exciting times. Filled with joy, filled with excitement. Probably just a little bit of anticipation, maybe just a little bit of, well, I wonder what's next. And it really was a time that even though we always don't emphasize it and maybe enough, it was essential for Christianity because the proof was there. The proof was there. The kingdom of God is explained. Our mission is reiterated to us. It should prepare us just as it prepared the original apostles to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the world around us. But then it falls back to us. What do you believe? We need to believe and obey Christ's message, his offer of salvation first and foremost. I said it earlier, but I am convinced that statistics will prove it. I don't care how good your church is. You get 200 people in here, some of them aren't saved. We might think we are. We might have thought we've been good enough. We've done the baptism or confirmation thing and we're kind of trying to be religious. But we need to remind ourselves that is not the answer. The key is do we accept who Jesus was, the sinless Son of God, and do we accept that he died in my place taking the punishment of death that was caused by my sin 
He died in my place. And if I accept that truth, accept that reality, I turn and confess my sin, acknowledge his propitiation, his sacrifice on my behalf, and surrender my life to him. That's what it means to become a Christian. And as I said, statistics would say some of us aren't. And the most important thing you could ever do is to deal with that today. It's not that hard. You acknowledge who you are as a sinner, who Jesus is and was, and what he did for you, and receive the gift. It's not about just praying the prayer. It's about praying a prayer that you mean from your heart. And that's where the commission then starts. Once we are part of the kingdom, you have now been commissioned to take the good news of the gospel to your neighbors, acquaintances, friends, workplace. Who knows where God will call you to go? I mean, gee, we've had people from this little church go to Thailand and Africa and South America and all over the world sharing the good news of the gospel. What's he want you to do? If you start saying, yes, Lord, open some doors, you'll be amazed where he'll take you. And remember, none of you are qualified, so don't go down that road. Neither am I. But he has given us the power and the commissioning to go and do it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that our confidence is in you. Our confidence is in your word. God, that the proof that you give us through your word secures our faith. God, in Jesus Christ as your son, our savior, our advocate, our Lord, our king. And God, that we would be faithful to pick up the mantle that you've given us to carry out your mission. God, that you would give us the grace by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to live lives that will bring glory and honor to you. God, that will we'll draw people to yourself as they see you living in us and through us. And God, that we would be faithful to share the good news of the gospel. So Lord, I pray you give us just an alertness even this week as we go about our daily week, our daily work, our schedules, that we'll be looking, watching, listening for those opportunities, those divine appointments to share the love of Jesus, to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray also as we go this morning, you would watch over us, keep us safe, protect us. Again, this morning, Lord, we pray for our youth that are on their way back, if not right now, pretty quick, for McGregor. And again, Lord, we we just pray that you would keep Glenn and Karen at the forefront of our mind, that we would continue to pray and encourage, build up, stand in the gap with them, for them. In Jesus' name, amen.